Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I want to begin this evening with the, with the Bible, because we're going to be doing a lot of Bible study tonight, and I'd ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. All right, we're going to take a look at verse uh, 14, but even if you do suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And it's that last phrase I want to emphasize. We're going to be looking at some fairly strange ideas this evening. As we, uh, as we studied in apologetics also yesterday, but even, even, even stranger tonight. And you're going to see some videos, and I'm sure it will draw forth some of the videos' laughter, maybe tears. But realize also, it's okay to, to chuckle when things are ridiculous, which you will see this evening. But to also realize that we're talking about human beings that are that are ensnared by error. And we are called as Christians to do one thing. To do one thing. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, is to do one thing. And St. Peter tells us what that is in chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, hold unfailing, unfailing your love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, yes, we're, we're studying these, uh, these apologetic topics, how to defend the faith against error, um, but we realize that that obligation is extremely important. That obligation is a reason why I started the Institute of Catholic Culture, to be able to love you and to create an environment where you could love each other. That's why we do dinners at the Institute of Catholic Culture, to create an environment where Catholics can once again come together, not to fulfill an obligation and run out the door five minutes before Mass, but to make a home, a true home, at their church. As I oftentimes tell my children, yeah, we live in our house in Front Royal, but our home is in McLean at Holy Transfiguration Church. That's where our home is, and that's where our heart is, and that's where our, our, our desire is. And same with tonight. Always be ready, Catholics. Always be ready to give a defense for the faith that you have and the love of Jesus Christ in your heart and your belief in the resurrection. But always do so with love and the desire to bring the other person to the fullness of the faith, not to win an argument, but to help someone rise from the dead. Amen? All right. Please welcome back Deacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Our first topic tonight is debunking the Jesus Seminar. So the Jesus Seminar, materialism. You're probably talking about the next talk. We're going to be talking about the prosperity gospel. Okay. All right. The Jesus Seminar. 
The Jesus Seminar was a group founded by the biblical scholar Robert Funk in 1985. From 1985, the group held meetings, published journals, books, and through its more public members, made regular television appearances. Dominic Crossan is that figure. Until the death of its founder, Robert Funk, in 2005, when it, shortly thereafter, unofficially disbanded. The Jesus Seminar, though no longer officially meeting, still has much influence today. Not so much among serious biblical scholars steeped in current research, but surely among the general public through its past publications, most significantly the books titled The Five Gospels, 1993, and then The Acts of Jesus, published in 1998. The stated mission of the Jesus Seminar was to educate the public about the historical findings of the scholarly world concerning Jesus. They rested their research on what they described as seven scholarly pillars. First, the distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith, an idea that had begun in post-Enlightenment German Protestant biblical scholarship in the early 1700s. The distinction between, as they say, the synoptic Jesus and the Johannine Jesus, with a significant favoritism for what they thought was more historically accurate in the former, that is, the synoptic Jesus. Number three, a heavier reliance on the Markan Jesus among the synoptics, which they saw as the most reliable and earliest of the gospel portraits of the historical Jesus in the four gospels. Number four, the reliance on the hypothetical source Q, whose existence began to be proposed in the late 1800s, again among post-Enlightenment German Protestant biblical scholars. Are we starting to see a pattern? Before we get too ahead of ourselves and move on to the fifth pillar, does anyone know what the document, or the hypothetical document Q is, or the two-source hypothesis, or Markan priority? So the two-source hypothesis is basically, as you see on the diagram, so you have Mark's gospel here and the Q document. It's called Q because this is the first letter of the German word quelle, quelle for source. So it's abbreviated source from the German quelle, Q, the Q document. It's a hypothetical source. It doesn't exist as far as we can discern, but there were German scholars who suggested its existence to support what they called Markan priority. That is that the Gospel of Mark among the three synoptic Gospels was the first written. But there was a problem because there were things that were in both Matthew and Luke. And if Matthew and Luke drew from Mark, but there were things common in Matthew and Luke that did not appear in Mark, then they must be drawing from another source, quelle, another source, which no longer existed apparently. So this is called the two-source hypothesis. It's a product of post-enlightenment German biblical scholarship. 
also has to do with a lot of the, the anti-Semitism in Germany at the time and the culture conf, but that would take us too far afield. So this has to do, this is one of the answers for what's called the synoptic problem. The problem of, or the question, what is the relationship of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels? They are very similar. They can be seen, you can lay them out on one page in what's called a synopsis and look at them in columns, but there are differences. And so as early as origin, there were questions about what is the relationship of these three. The earliest discussions of this uh, and, uh, and answers for this, this problem we find in Eusebius and Augustine and other fathers of the time who explain that Matthew was written first for a Palestinian Christian audience. Mark's gospel was the record of Peter's preaching by Mark, the evangelist, while Peter was in Rome. And Luke's gospel was the product of his, his uh, research of the local sources, as he says in the beginning of his gospel, and his travels with Paul. As you know, Luke was a companion of Paul. The early church had an answer for what became known as the synoptic problem, but in post-enlightenment German Protestant scholarship, they weren't too interested in reading the fathers. They could have saved some time had they done that. The fifth pillar, the fifth pillar of, the, of, the, uh, of their research, so again, just to clarify, that, that fourth pillar was the reliance on the hypothetical Q document. How do you know what is the Q document? Well, if you find information that is in Matthew, a passage that's in Matthew, that is also in Luke, but is not in Mark, then, as the theory goes, it must be coming from Q. And so you can reconstruct the hypothetical document based upon that commonality between Matthew and Luke, but difference from Mark. You see how it works? Now, of course, you can rearrange these squares all sorts of different ways and throw Q out the window, and you can come up with all sorts of other answers, right? But, all right, so now, the fifth pillar, the denial that Jesus had any interest in eschatology. These are the seven pillars from which they worked. The denial that Jesus had any interest in eschatology, the members of the seminar determined that the idea that Jesus was interested in eschatology, that is the end times, the end things, the, ha the things having to do with the end of the world, was contrary to the historical Jesus that they imagined. And so therefore, when they looked in the scriptures, if they saw something having to do with Jesus speaking about the end, any kind of eschatological discourse, that must be inauthentic, can be discounted. Number six, the idea that since Jesus existed in an oral culture and not a print culture, primarily at least, then only those sayings that were short and memorable would have been preserved and written down with any accuracy. For example, concerning Luke chapters 22, 36 to 37, we can turn there and take a look at one of the types of passages which they discounted. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 36. He said to them, But now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag, and let him who has no sword 
sell his mantle and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was reckoned with transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. There is nothing in these words, according to the members, in these words attributed to Jesus, that cuts against the social grain, that would surprise or shock his friends, or that reflects exaggeration, humor, or paradox, and thus would not have been memorable. And thus, it is simply a fabrication of the early church. Number seven, the seventh pillar. The assumption that the information about Jesus in the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is historically unreliable. So they begin with that assumption that when you look at the four Gospels, the first thing you assume is what you're reading is historically unreliable, until proven innocent. Right? <laughs> Along with these seven pillars, the members of the seminar also worked from certain criteria in their examination of the particular passages of the Gospels. Criteria for authenticity. Multiple attestation. For example, Jesus' mother was named Mary. This appears in all four Gospels. All four Gospels say that Jesus had a mother and her name was Mary. That's multiple attestation. If a particular saying of Jesus or an act of Jesus appears in multiple Gospels, it would be considered more likely to be historically reliable, at least as a relic of some sort of event or saying. If it appears only in, say, one gospel, then it is most likely the fabrication of that particular author. These are criteria for authenticity. Second, embarrassment. So, for example, the crucifixion, which has multiple attestation and is considered embarrassing. You have the, the disciples of Jesus, his followers, would not have created a story so embarrassing as that their founder was crucified in a horrible death by the Roman Empire. That would be considered embarrassing, not something that you would likely fabricate if you were creating a new religion. So, therefore, the crucifixion story, with multiple attestation and being an embarrassment to the early church, is most likely historically relevant. The third criterion for authenticity, a saying of Jesus. Those were acts of Jesus uh, in the second one there. But now a, a saying of Jesus, irony, frustration, reversal, opposite of expectation. If you see in the saying, and we already talked about this in one of the pillars, if you see in the saying of Jesus something that is the opposite of what the audience would have expected, it's shocking. Love your enemies. Well, this is something that they most likely would have been able to remember because it's shocking. It's not simple and plain. And so therefore, since it's in the text and it's shocking, it then is possibly something that was remembered by the authors or the, the friends of Jesus, those who had contact with him. Again, to explain what that means, if Jesus had said something very simple, then who would remember it? And so therefore, as something as simple 
in the New Testament, some saying of Jesus, then it's probably a fabrication because who would have remembered such a simple statement? Let's see how the argument goes. Fourth, trust in God. This is one of the more shocking ones. Trust in God. If a statement of Jesus or an act of Jesus implies trust in God, it's most likely authentic. The members of the, of the seminar, for some reason, determined that the historical Jesus had great trust in God and he taught others to have trust in God. And so therefore, whatever we find in the Gospels that in any way hints at that must be authentic. You getting dizzy on that one? <laughs> For example, ask and it will be given to you. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it will be opened. Now, criteria for inauthenticity. Criteria for inauthenticity. A self-reference by Jesus. I am the light of the world. Inauthentic. The members of the, of the seminar imagined a historical Jesus who would not have directed attention to himself. He was a very humble, wise, wandering Jew. And this was just not the type of thing you would have imagined of him. So if he said something like, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. I am the light of the world. This is a fabrication of the early church, the members of the seminar determined. Second, second criterion for inauthenticity, framing materials. If you find a saying of Jesus, love your enemies, which is shocking and may be an authentic saying, the narrative that surrounds it is most likely a fabrication of the author framing this relic, this historical relic about Jesus. So Jesus says, love your enemies. Well, before this, it says Jesus went up on a mountain. Well, that's the creation and the imagination of the author. Then after that, Jesus went down the mountain. That's a frame and device, a narrative that is created to couch a little relic, a jewel of one of Jesus' original sayings. Third, the third criterion for inauthenticity, community issues. If Jesus says something that has to do with the early church, his movement that he was starting, apparently, then it is most likely inauthentic. For example, telling Simon that he is the rock upon which he's going to build this church, or saying if there is a problem in the community, take it to the church. This is in Matthew's Gospel. Or at the end of Matthew's Gospel, go out and make, nation, uh, make disciples of all nations. The members of the seminar had determined that Jesus had no interest in forming any kind of a movement. And so therefore, as you look into the New Testament, you find Jesus preparing his disciples for anything after his life would be considered inauthentic. Anything, anything preparing for the structure and the longevity of the community, the movement he was creating. <clears throat> Jesus didn't call disciples, according to the members of the seminar. They just happened to follow along. <laughs> fourth, the fourth and final criterion for inauthenticity, 
theological agenda of a particular author. If you're looking at a saying or an act of Jesus in one of the four Gospels, and it in some way fits or supports the theological agenda, the purpose of writing of that author, then it is most likely a fabrication of that particular author. <clears throat> they would combine this with multiple attestation as well. With these criteria, authentic and inauthentic, and the seven pillars already mentioned, the seminar members set to work, combing the four Gospels, along with anything else they thought relevant from the period, such as the non-canonical Gospel of Thomas, looking for literary relics buried in the ash heap of theological embellishment. These were their presuppositions. But how did they actually do the digging? What were their tools? Does anybody know? I think somebody said it earlier. Colored beads. That's right, the beads, the beads. Each member of the seminar was given a pile of beads, red, pink, gray, and black. Red symbolized an authentic statement of Jesus, historically accurate statement or act of Jesus. It represented three points. Pink, probably authentic, but not for sure. Two points. Gray, probably inauthentic, one point. And then black, inauthentic, zero points. When a particular passage was up for a vote of authenticity, each scholar placed a bead of his or her choosing into a common container. Based upon the consensus of the members determined by voting with beads, the historical Jesus looked like this. Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. He was a child of a woman named Mary, possibly the son of a man named Joseph, but likely illegitimate. He was born in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. He spent his adult life as a wandering wisdom teacher. His primary concern was for the poor and outcasts. He became a public nuisance, was arrested in Jerusalem, and crucified by the Romans. That is what the seminar determined was historically accurate in the New Testament about Jesus. Also some insertions on their own, of course. Everything else in the New Testament about Jesus is the Christ of faith. Remember that distinction, the historical Jesus versus the Christ of faith. The Christ of faith is the product of the theological embellishments of the early church. Jesus did not perform miracles, did not claim to be the Messiah, and surely did not rise from the dead. Now, let's turn to a few video clips taken from an ABC show by Peter Jennings in 
2000 titled In Search of Jesus. Robert Funk, the founder of the Jesus Seminar. Again, Robert Funk, 1985, founded the Jesus Seminar. Co-founder, Dominic Crossan. Here we hear uh, in this interview with Peter Jennings in the year 2000, ABC, we hear him discussing the virgin birth. So, okay, so that's the Jesus Seminar. Now for a few criticisms. We'll close with this. It seems hardly necessary to talk about criticisms of the Jesus Seminar among a crowd such as this. The problems being obvious enough from what you just saw and heard, but let's take a moment and look critically at the critical scholarship of the seminar. By the way, what I'm saying here are not my own words, but a summary of the major critiques of well-known major biblical scholars in the world, such as Luke Timothy Johnson, Richard Hayes, Ben Witherington, and N.T. Wright. These are some of the top scholars in biblical studies right now. Qualifications of the members, first of all. Well, 14 of the 74 members of the seminar who contributed to the first book, the five Gospels, that's 14 of 74, were considered well-respected biblical scholars. Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg, Robert Funk, and a few others. Many were relatively unknown in the scholarly world, and some weren't even biblical scholars at all. One of the funnier examples is one of the members who was a film director and had a mathematics degree, master's degree in mathematics and physics. He was one of the members who was voting with the beads. It's hard to call the seminar a legitimate sample of scholarly opinion in biblical studies, especially when such major scholarly critique of the seminar has come from such major scholars as Ed Sanders, N.T. Wright, Luke Timothy Johnson, the list goes on. As N.T. Wright put in comparison to the members of the Jesus Seminar, quote, another figure whose work has been totally ignored is Ben F. Meyer, a Catholic scholar, who has more understanding of how ancient texts work in his little finger than any member of the Jesus Seminar seems to have in their entire word processor, and whose writings on Jesus is utterly rigorous, utterly scholarly, and utterly different in its results from anything in the Jesus Seminar publication, The Five Gospels. That's N.T. Wright speaking of on his most favorite author, Ben Meyer. If you ever have a chance to read his book, Aims of Jesus, it's a wonderful read. Second major critique, the portrait of Jesus drawn by the Jesus Seminar looks much like the portrait of Jesus drawn by Robert Funk, Dominic Crossan, and Marcus Borg before any voting ever took place. And it in fact reflects the theological views of the major members more than any kind of scientific, unbiased analysis. Hard to call voting with beads scientific. This reminds me of the now classic saying of George Tyrell of 1909 in his critique of the historical Jesus research of an earlier historical Jesus scholar, 
Harnack. He said, the Christ that Harnack sees, looking back through the 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. One could apply this saying in the present case, the historical Jesus that the, the seminar sees through the lens of their own theological bias is only the reflection of their own face seen at the bottom of a deep well. Though in this case, the image is not on the surface of water, but a bucket filled with colored beads. <laughs> the, reflection of the, uh, the rejection of the possibility that Jesus made eschatological statements this assumption. This is contrary to all current biblical research that would confirm, as the last 2,000 years of tradition have, that Jesus was concerned with eschatological issues. Eschatological, that is things having to do with the end times. So another major critique is that the portrait of Jesus that has been created by the Jesus Seminar in this respect, along with many others, is completely contrary to what has been found in scientific research today and also in the history of the tradition of the church. Fourth, divorcing Jesus from his cultural milieu. The portrait of Jesus drawn by the seminar looks nothing like any of his contemporaries in his culture and histor historical period. Jesus' contemporaries were interested in theological and eschatological issues. Look at the Essenes, the Pharisees, John the Baptist, the Sadducees. Five, the bias against canonical sources and a preference for non-canonical sources such as the Gospel of Thomas and hypothetical sources such as Q and even Proto-Mark an early form of Mark, which was more palatable to the Jesus Seminar, hypothetical source again. And even a doubly hypothetical source, Proto-Q. <laughs> Q was a nice document for the German scholars in the post-alignment period, but it made the Jesus Seminar uncomfortable in this reconstructed document because in Q, this hypothetical document, determined by looking at passages in Matthew and Luke, Jesus apparently spoke about eschatological issues. Therefore, there was most likely a proto-cue before these eschatological additions were made. If the Jesus Seminar is correct on the historical accuracy of these sources and the existence of the hypothetical ones, then the early church radically changed the details about Jesus that they knew and successfully eliminated any memory or literary relic of the previously known historical details. To quote one scholarly critique, the conclusions of the Jesus Seminar, quote, requires the assumption that someone about a generation removed from the events in question, radically transformed the authentic information about Jesus that was circulating at that time, superimposed a body of material four times as large, 
fabricated almost entirely out of whole cloth, while the church suffered sufficient collective amnesia to accept the transformation as legitimate. So, that's the Jesus Seminar. Kind of a depressing topic. But here's some good news, and we'll talk about some more good news uh, in the next session. There are major biblical scholars out there who have opposed the works of the Jesus Seminar. N.T. Wright is a classic example of someone who has, for the most part, devoted his life of scholarship to counter the arguments of the Jesus Seminar. He's an Anglican scholar, incredible biblical scholar, one of the most Catholic biblical scholars I've ever read, strangely enough. N.T. Wright, uh, he, if you want to read a little more by him, aside from the quotes I gave you, he has an article analyzing the publication of the Jesus Seminar of the Five Gospels. This is N.T. Wright. His article is titled, Five Gospels But No Gospel, Jesus and the Seminar. Jesus and the Seminar. This was in the book, Authenticating the Activities of Jesus. Authenticating the Activities of Jesus, published in 1999. Maybe something more accessible to you than an article like that would be one of his books. N.T. Wright has written a number of scholarly texts, also popular works. I highly recommend them to you. N.T. Wright's book, where he has a major counter to the Jesus Seminar, is Jesus and the victory of God. Jesus and the victory of God. If you have any issues with insomnia, <laughs> this, along with some melatonin, will surely help you. <laughs> it's a great work if you're really into this stuff, okay? But for most people, it's too much. It's written for doctoral level studies, and it's a big, thick book. It's about that thick, okay? So, uh, but if you really want to get into it, N.T. Wright, Jesus and the Victory of God, would be his most substantial work countering the work of the Jesus Seminar. And then, regarding the synoptic problem, if you were interested in what we talked about, that Q and the two-source theory, and where did that come from? And it sounds kind of crazy. It is. And many biblical scholars are rejecting it today, thank God. But there are a number of great works that have been done recently countering that theory that came out of post-enlightenment Germany, but has had so much influence on scholars today. Uh, the major scholars who have done work against that uh, theory, Bernard Orchard, a Catholic biblical scholar of the 50s, Bernard Orchard, none of his works are still in print, unfortunately. William Farmer, who was a Methodist scholar and eventually became a Catholic, and taught at Dallas University. He passed away a few years ago, but many of his works are still in print. Anything by William Farmer is against the two-source hypothesis, anything he wrote. Uh, and then his most important disciple or student, David Dungan. David Dungan, D-U-N-G-A-N, wrote the definitive work on the history of the synoptic problem. That's the title, the history of the synoptic problem. He traces the question from origin until today. Very, uh, very well done, very uh, work, very scholarly, and very well received, even by those who disagree with Dungan and Farmer, those who still hold to Markham priority. Uh, but a, a good work if you're interested in that question. If you know anybody who 
for one reason or another, talks about Q and Mark and Priority to you, this is the book to give them. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.